Acts chapter 18. Things are starting to speed up for us in the book of Acts. We will be in Acts chapter 18 uh, today, then I'll do 19, then we will do 20, and then it's going to be 21, 22, 23 in one go, 24, 25, 26 in one go, 27, 28, done. 10th of December. Uh, Two weeks for Christmas, and uh, that is how we are doing things. And I've just learned to appreciate these difficult narrative texts. They're difficult texts at the end of the book. They're difficult uh, because they're, they're just historical narrative. In Acts chapter 18, we are on the tail end of Paul's second missionary journey. His second missionary journey. Chapter 13 and 14 were the first. Chapters 16, 17, and 18 are the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And this morning we are going to see the planting of the church at Corinth. You know your New Testament at all. You will recognize that there are two letters in there, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, or 2 two Corinthians as Donald Trump calls it, um, and they are addressed to this church in Corinth. And I want us to, we want us to pay particular attention uh, this morning to the providence of God in this ministry work. R.C. Sproul says that the providence of God means that everything in creation is under the providing care of God. Not only does God supply all things, he arranges them according to his plan for his glory. And for Christians, this ought to produce peace and comfort, even when it appears that all is against them. I love that. The providential care of God, his organizing of all things, that he might get the most glory and his people might get the most good. Acts chapter 1, we're going to read verse 18 to 20, uh, verse, verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 24. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, 
but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to, to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila. At century he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But when he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. The word of the Lord endures forever. So, it is now A.D. 50 or 51. Twenty years after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Twenty years have gone by since that wonderful moment. Time is marching on as it always does. And Paul, now on his second missionary journey, will seek to continue to do what he did on his first journey through the province of Galatia. And that is, plant churches. We remember how he planted churches. He left them with the apostolic doctrine of Jesus Christ and the Old Testament scriptures, teaching about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and left them with the the, the Old Testament scriptures. He also then gave them an appointed qualified leadership or eldership over the churches to care and protect for them. And then he entrusted those churches to the Holy Spirit. Those three things. He did. And so he plants churches. He moves from Athens, uh, which Andrew so wonderfully spoke about last week in Acts chapter 17, Athens and Thessalonica, and he goes into Corinth in modern day Greece. Paul will spend the next five years in two strategic cities planting churches Corinth and then Ephesus. Both of these are port cities, both of these are centers of trade, both of these are centers of politics, both of these are centers of culture. 
And Corinth was especially strategic because it was on a very narrow stretch of land. You can look this up yourself on on, on Google Maps. In Greece, it's a, it's a very narrow stretch of land. And it's a port city, but it had ports on either side. And the port on the west side pointed towards Italy. It was the quickest route to get to modern-day Italy. And the port on the east side pointed towards Turkey and Syria and Israel, and it would even be the place that you would use to get to North Africa from Greece. So Corinth was a very important place that lots of people would be traveling through. Paul spends a year and a half, our text tells us, a year and a half in this Greek city of Corinth. And it is here in Corinth that he writes First and Second Thessalonians. Those two letters in your New Testament are written right here during this time. But Corinth, make no mistake, is nothing like Jerusalem. Nothing like Jerusalem at all. If philosophy and the arts were the gods of Athens, then sex and sport were the gods of Corinth. If we could use the present day example, and I am resisting the urge to make a Hamilton joke. If we could use the present day example, Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. We understand what that means. Las Vegas, Sin City. This is what Corinth was. We see this especially in 1 Corinthians when the church is plagued still by problems of sexual immorality. No, you cannot sleep with your mother-in-law. You can't do that. This was Corinth. So how do you plant a church in the Las Vegas of the ancient world? Well, Paul does what he so often has done, and he goes and finds a synagogue. And why does he do this? Because he's a Jew, he's been trained as a rabbi, and this is an open door for him to share. This is the easiest possible place for Paul to get an audience and share the good news about Jesus Christ. So he goes and finds the synagogue, and we're told here, he says he reasoned in the synagogue every single Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. That word persuade and reason, once again, as Andrew said, debate, argue, persuade, making a case from the word of God. We're told there in verse 5 that it says, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. That's what he's doing. He takes the Old Testament scriptures and he's testifying from them, he's explaining them, he's expounding them, and he's showing them how Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Savior. How Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, is the promised Savior. He's sharing the gospel. He is taking the Old Testament scriptures and showing how they point to Jesus. I cannot fathom how you can possibly look at the Old Testament scriptures and think that they don't point towards Jesus Christ. 
And there's a very popular idea that going around that says that not all of it points to Jesus, that we can't find Jesus in all parts of the Old Testament. Let me say, let me just share briefly on this. It is true that we must be careful of taking the Old Testament scriptures and trying to magically find Jesus there where he is not present. But what we must do, like for example, Samson's got his arms, arms out pushing down, pushing down pillars and bringing it down. Jesus had his arms outstretched too. Samson's like, Jesus, no. Hocus pocus. Forget that. But all of scripture needs to be understood as being in the context of a redemptive story of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to see Jesus Christ in the scriptures. All of it is his story from start to finish. God created the world good. We made it bad. We fell. We sinned. We disobeyed. And he promised to send one into the world to save his people, to save us. The story of creation, for redemption, and final consummation in Jesus Christ. That's how we are to read the scriptures. We are to see all throughout that Jesus Christ is the one who fits in the story, who is testified to. Jesus Christ is the one promised who would come to crush the serpent's head, we're told in Genesis 3. Jesus Christ is the one who, through all nations of the world, would be blessed through him. That was the promise to Abraham. Those sacrificial lambs that were killed in the temple, the Passover lamb whose blood was put on the doorpost, it's all pointing to him, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ fulfills our need for a ruler, for a Lord who rules righteously and justice. Jesus Christ is the greater David, the forever king. He is the savior of Israel. He is the Christ. This is Jesus of Nazareth. So even when you look at something such as the book of Judges, and we see the sin that's found in there in this horrible time where Israel just downturns. How do we see Christ in that? We see it as Jesus being the remedy to that, to that rebelliousness, that fall into sin when there's no true king. Jesus is that true king. We see it when we see ourselves in that sinfulness of the people. Jesus Christ came to forgive us for those sins through his atoning death on the cross. Even something, you know those, uh, you go through Chronicles. Look at those genealogies in the scripture. All of them, all of that, need to be viewed in the context of Jesus Christ who came into the world to save us. The context of his redemption story. All of it all pointing to him. All of it, all of it. Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. This is what he would have been doing. 
showing how all of the word pointed to Christ and we are all in his story. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that from him and through him and to him are all things. The world was created by him. The world was created for him. The world was created through him. Redemption is accomplished through him and by him and for him. This is what he was doing. Having believed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the sharing, this good news of the Savior, Paul baptizes two men here in Corinth. So he begins with preaching the word and proclaiming and showing how it points to Christ and how Christ is the remedy, and then he begins baptizing. He only baptizes two men. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that he baptized a Gentile God-fearer named Titius Justus, believed to be known as Gaius, and he baptizes a Jew called Crispus, who's the leader of the synagogue. How does Paul plant a church in Corinth? He begins preaching the gospel. And he begins baptizing converts. And they come into the church. And we're told that the leader of the synagogue, obviously a well-respected Jew, comes to see that his own scriptures are pointing to Jesus Christ. And he believes and is baptized in the name of Christ. Paul doesn't baptize too many people because he doesn't want people to think, hey, I've been baptized by Paul, I'm special. So he baptizes two people, and then a number of other Corinthians are baptized into this church, and it is established. But there is not without controversy. I want us to see in this text three evidences of the providence of God that allowed this church to be planted and established in Corinth. The first providence of God is that he sends people He sends Christians to help out in this church plant here in Corinth. It is highly unlikely that Paul, having come into Corinth at this point in his journey, is feeling discouraged after the difficulties of the past few months. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 right at the start tells us that Paul came into Corinth a picture of weakness with much fear and trembling. This is not an encouraged man. This is not a man who's feeling confident at all. This is not a man probably with a lot of energy. He limps into Corinth. But God providentially sends him encouragement. He meets two people that become lifelong friends. Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila, the male, Priscilla, the woman, just so you know. These two people are involved in the same trade that he is, which is tent making. More likely, we should understand this is leather working. A saddler. Paul and Priscilla and Aquila set up shop together, likely with goat hides and goat leather making products. And they work together. 
And then on the Sabbath, they try and meet with Jews and, other, and Greeks, and they try and convince them of Jesus Christ. But we're told something special here about Priscilla and Aquila. It says that they come from Rome. And they have been expelled. They're Jews that have been expelled by the Emperor Claudius. The historian Suetonius writes, a secular historian, he writes and said that there was an uprising in Rome because of Christus, the Christ. The em- basically, what likely happened is that all of this Christian teaching, like what Paul is doing, was happening in the synagogue in synagogues in Rome too, and the Jews didn't like it, and so there was an uprising. So the emperor in Rome, Claudius, said, enough of this, I want all of you Jews to get out of here. And so Priscilla and Aquila were kicked out of Rome, they were probably kicked out of the synagogue too, and they found themselves in Corinth. This is the providential hardship that these people faced. This is not something they would have liked. This is not something they would have wished upon themselves. We know eventually that they end up back in Rome, likely when there's a new emperor, but they use this providential hardship for the sake of Christ and his church. Can you put yourselves in their shoes? Imagine right now if you were kicked out of Palmerston North. That might be a good thing for you. I don't know. But you were kicked out. These are business owners. They likely lost their business. They likely lose some of their family and friends. What do they do? What do they do? They seek to serve Christ and the church in a new place. They used this providential hardship, this curveball, we could call it, for the sake of his name. No mention of complaining, no mention of woe is me, they just get on with it. God has moved them to a new place. And so they go. And we're told at the end of this chapter, Paul basically drops them off in Ephesus a year and a half later. Paul preaches there very briefly, but he drops Priscilla and Aquila off in Ephesus and says, get to know people. We're going to plant a church out of your house. Get working. I'll be back shortly. And leaves. So these people help plant churches in Corinth, they help plant church in Ephesus, and they help plant a church in Rome, and they do a wonderful thing, and it's all because God gave them something that they may have thought was not a good gift, but it was used for good. These are ordinary, faithful people. They're not, we're never told that they have wonderful gifts. We're never told that they are great preachers. We're never told that they're eloquent. They are simply faithful, hospitable Christians who love people and sought to serve their God wherever they find themselves. And that is an example for us all. We're told also in verse 5 that Timothy and Silas come. And as I play, as we play uh, puzzle making here and we see how this all fits together, at this point, when 
when Timothy and Silas come in to Paul while he's in Corinth, they bring a financial gift for Paul from the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica. Philippians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11 tells us this. And Paul is able to stop being a tent maker and is able to be a full-time pastor and minister here. Paul is able to stop being bivocational because this gift comes in. So that's the first providence. The second providence that God gives is that of special revelation. Look at verse 9. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. Paul is told by his Lord Jesus Christ, I am with you. I am with you. You know that story in the Gospels when the disciples are in the boat and the wind's in the rain comes up and they get very, very scared? Why are they told not to fear? Because Christ is with them. Because Christ is with them. And that's what he says to them. I am with you. Jesus is not physically present. But he says, I am with you. I am ruling from heaven. I am with you. I promise that no harm will fall upon you in this place. You will be able to finish this ministry. And for nearly two years, (laughs) you might not think this is a great deal, but for Paul this is a great deal. For two years he doesn't get whipped or stoned. Great! I told you that, you probably wouldn't be encouraged by that news, but Paul is greatly encouraged. Two years without getting beaten? Great! This encourages him. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Paul is told that. And Jesus says that he has many people in the city. He has sheep not in the fold. John chapter 10, the good shepherd. Jesus says that I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. Paul is encouraged by the fact that there are people in this city of Corinth that are not Christians, but Jesus has chosen them. This is the election that has been talked about. Jesus has chosen a people for himself, and he will bring them in. And Paul says, your job is to preach the gospel that these people may hear and believe, and they will be brought in. They will come to faith. So what does he tell them to do? He encourages him. You won't be hurt. You will... Uh, you will be have some success in this ministry. And they says, keep speaking. Keep speaking. Keep speaking. Isaiah 55 verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
Do you know that sometimes when we share the gospel, sometimes when we declare the truth of God, sometimes when we preach, sometimes maybe even right now, some people accept it and some people reject it, but both times the word has done its work. It judges and it saves. It bolts up and it condemns. The word will do its work according to the purpose of God. And that's what Paul says, keep speaking. And therefore Paul spends 18 months here in Corinth. The second longest time he spends anywhere, apart from his time in Ephesus, because God assures him it will be okay. And I will say once again, this does not mean it's easy. It does not mean it's easy. But God is with him. And lastly, the third providence of God, for the people, the special revelation, the third providence of God is the judgment of Gallio, the Roman law expert. There continues to be a dust up with the Jews here. Paul and his fellow Jews, but these unbelieving Jews, continue to butt heads. It says that Paul is opposed and reviled simply for explaining the scriptures to them, just so you know. He didn't do anything wrong. He just told them the truth. And they got mad. Paul says, shakes the dust. I have nothing to do with you. I am not responsible for your unbelief. Your blood is on your own heads. Paul is quoting Nehemiah chapter 5 when he does this. Condemning unbelief. Shakes the dust to say not even any the dust that was in the room with you is coming with me. It's all on you. But this has not been for nothing because we're told that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, is converted. That's great news. And so what does Paul do? I, I, I love the... Um, the savageness of this, really. They get kicked out of the synagogue so he can no longer preach there. So what does he do? He moves in next door. It says, it says that. Next door. There's a Roman guy there and he has a big house. And so they move in next door, right next to the synagogue. And you can imagine Paul standing outside the front door of uh, Tidius Justice's house next door to the synagogue and on the Sabbath people go into the synagogue and he goes come in here they don't have the truth we've got it come here come here what happens what happens next what happens next does that de-escalate everything or does that escalate it it escalates it. But Paul's being told, you're not going to die here. So he is emboldened. And so a Roman law expert, proconsul called Gallio, comes into town. He gets appointed. And the Jews go, great, we're going to make an attack upon Paul and these Christians using Gallio, who is an emissary of the state. And they tell they tell Gallio, they say, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. 
That's verse 13. What law are we talking about here? What law are they saying Paul is breaking? God's law? No. Roman law. The Jews say to Gallio that Paul and these Christians are persuading people to worship God contrary to your law, Roman law. This is illegal. Paul and Gallio have something in common. Not in common at this point. They have something in common in that they were both killed by the Emperor Nero. That's how it ends up for Paul. AD 65, he gets killed by Nero. Gallio gets killed too, because Nero's crazy. And so, Gallio understands that the Emperor, the Caesar, has given the Jews the right to practice their religion. The Jews were given freedom to practice their religion. Just don't infringe upon Romans. Don't, don't, don't be an enemy to the state at all. And so the Jews were given religious freedom, and Christianity up until this point had operated within that same freedom. And Gallio rightly says, verse 15, he rightly says, this is a matter for your religion. This is a debate about questions about words and names in your own law. Gallio rightly understands that this Christianity and Jew fallout comes down to how you read the Old Testament, your law. And he says, so this is an inner Judaism debate. This is a debate about the meaning and understanding of the Old Testament. Is Jesus Christ of Nazareth the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, or is he not? But, and this is amazing to me, a government official decides that something is not the role of the government. He goes, not my problem. No one's killing anyone, he says. No, one's, no crimes have been committed. This is a religious debate. Sort it out yourself. I don't want to deal with it. This is a miracle in and of itself, is it not? This is providence of God. A government official decides it's not the government's job to sort something out. That never happens. But it does here. It does here. Christianity is not a threat to the state, Gallio believes. And so Gallio kicks the Jews out. He says, you've got nothing to say to me here. Get out of here. He kicks the Jews out, and their response is to beat a man called Sosthenes. Okay. Verse 17. They beat this guy. He's the head of the synagogue. Remember, Crispus has just become converted. So the head of the synagogue has become converted. He's become a Christian. So the new head of the synagogue, this is within months, the Jews get frustrated with the head of their synagogue and they beat him. Possibly because he has made them look foolish, but more likely because he's been letting Christians come in and teach. He's been allowing this teaching that Jesus is the Christ. 
to be in the synagogue. So they decide to beat him. This is not the end of the story. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. We can't tell for sure. Probably the same guy. And what that means is, is that Crispus, the first head of the synagogue, has become a Christian. The next head of the synagogue has become a Christian too. Possibly after he gets beaten, he goes, these are not my friends. God is at work. God's word is at work, and we see it here. This story is a wonderful picture. The planting of the church in Sin City is a wonderful picture of the Great Commission. I want to read it, so we always reminded of this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts chapter 18 tells us the providential care of God for his people and church. It means it doesn't mean that hardship is removed, that opposition is removed. It doesn't mean that. But we do see that God uses all things for good for those who love him in accord according to his purpose. Amen. Let's pray.